I mentioned before, there are four themes or qualities or virtues or whatever you want to call them that go with the Advent. Hope, peace, joy, and love. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. Uh, Pastor Chris is going to speak on love on the fourth Sunday. And then uh, Pastor Brian has the one on peace. Is that right? Okay. Didn't get you all confused. Okay. We don't want to go with switchcraft. Chris accused me of doing puns, and I told him I was not a punster. It happens. So we're going we're gonna to take a look here at Advent, these four themes, and today we're going to focus down on hope. And I hope that you leave here today filled with the hope of Jesus Christ. Think about all four of these qualities of these virtues of these themes for Advent is they are all choices that we have to make. We have to choose hope. We have to choose peace. We have to choose joy and choose love. They're choices that we make. God offers these gifts, but then we must choose to receive them. Just like any other gift. Doesn't do you any good just sitting there under the tree or on a shelf. You have to take it Receive it and open it up. All four of these are the same way. They're also situation, uh, re- relational and not situational. That is, God's abiding presence is the means by which these gifts are given. That's what conveyance means. That's just a fancy word. I thought I'd throw a 25-cent word in there once in a while. These gifts are also participatory. That means God's already done His part and now we have to do ours. We get to participate in what He has given in these gifts. Therefore, when we look today at the biblical hope of Advent, we have to remember that biblical hope is more than optimism. It's more than wishful thinking. And as an old DJ, I'll say it's more than a feeling. Yeah, I was a DJ in the 70s, so I played that. Biblical hope is a choice. It is a definite decision to receive. And that's where the hope begins. Biblical hope is a relationship. It's defined by our personal commitment to God's abiding presence. Biblical hope is also a lifestyle. It's developed through an ongoing, and there's the P word, process. Y'all familiar with process? Okay. The word that's used for hope in English is actually the Greek word elpis. Not elvis, elpis. It literally means to trust, to wait for, to look for, desire something or someone, to expect something beneficial in the future. It's eager, confident, assured expectation coupled with contented, persistent, and patient endurance. Biblical hope 
depicts an expectation of good things. An expectation with a desire. The desire of something good with the expectation of attaining it. Godly hope means that rather than assuming failure or assuming bad results, we can always expect God's very best. That's God's way. Now some of us have that negative tape playing, don't we? And it always says, this ain't going to work. This ain't going to work out. This is not going to go well. But when we have biblical hope in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we expect nothing but His best. Godly hope not only expects the best, but it's filled with an anticipation to see the manifestation of that very thing that's hoped for. And God only gives good gifts to His kids. So what does biblical hope look like in our real world? How is biblical hope experienced in our daily lives? How is biblical hope connected to Advent and the Christmas story? Well, let's look at Luke chapter 2. And this is on the, on the church app. The notes are in the church app if you're interested. The Christmas story is found in Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading about verse 8. Over there. Good. Luke says, Now there were shepherds in that region living in the fields and keeping the night watch over their flock. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were struck with great fear. Throughout the scripture, there are instances where we are fearful and God brings the opposite. So the angel said to them, do not be afraid. That's God's answer. For behold, I, pray, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you who is Messiah and Lord. Now, all those titles are significant. I won't have time to break. I'm not going to take time. I have time, but I'm not going to take the time to break all that down. But we're going to try to go through these uh, things that are connected with Advent and hope. Jesus, later on, would respond and pinpoint and define what the angels meant by good news. The good news that the angels had announced on that night to the shepherds, Jesus proclaimed one day standing up in the synagogue. He quoted from Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. And in that quote, he cited four characteristics of biblical hope that we're going to look at today. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18 says this, and Jesus is reading here from the Isaiah scroll. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. You know, there's always a purpose and a reason for anointing. God doesn't waste His anointing. He always does it for a reason. He has anointed me, and here's the four things that Jesus said He, had, he was anointed for. Number one, to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to, number two, release, deliver, or set free the captives. 
Number three, for recovery of sight to the blind. And number four, to set free, to release and deliver those who are oppressed. And some translations have the word bruised there. The Isaiah passage from 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners. I use an old-fashioned mnemonic uh, memory device. I know it's probably dated, but so am I. Uh, and so I like to use something that helps us remember what we're talking about. And so I'm going to go through the four letters of hope, H-O-P-E, and use this scripture that Jesus just quoted to identify the four things that Advent hope, biblical hope, is all about. First of all is the H, and the H stands for heartfelt encouragement. The rejoicing in God's good news, that is, to preach the gospel, Jesus said. That's what he was coming for, is to preach the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2.16, Paul says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting encouragement and good hope. You see how those are hooked together? Through his grace. Grace is the word gift, in case you haven't heard that before. The word grace literally means gift. It's the same thing in the original language. So he has given us everlasting encouragement and good hope through his gift, his grace. Encourage your hearts, then Paul says, and strengthen them in every good deed and word. So there is good hope and grace in this gift of encouragement that God has given us through Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 18, it says, For on the one hand, there is the setting aside of a former commandment because of the weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That's the good news. We have a better hope. Our hope isn't in trying to keep all the rules. Our hope is in a relationship with a living Savior. Jesus Christ. The word good news here is actually one word. For us in, in English, many times when we go to the scriptures, the original language was one word, and we take two or three words in English to have to explain it. When Jesus said, I've come to preach the good news, to preach the gospel, the word gospel literally is the two words that mean good news. Euangelion is the word that's used there. The word is broken down, you can break it down, E-U, the first two letters of the word, it means good. And angelion means message. That's where we get our word angel from. Angel literally means messenger. And so the word euangelion, or evangelizing, or gospel, is about good news, a good message. And the good news, the good message is that Jesus has come to save us. And to give us hope. Can't get much better news than that. The word of Evangelion here means to announce good news, to preach good news, to channel good news, to evangelize, to be an evangelist, 
Did you know that we're called to all of us to be evangelists? We are called to share the good news that Christ has given to us. That's the thing. It's, it's like the Hallmark thing. You know, it's a gift that keeps on giving. It's that gift that we can take to ourselves but immediately want to give away. And you'll find that the more you give this gift away, the greater the gift is in you. Because the good news of Christ expands and grows. Now he said that he'd come to preach good news to the poor. The word that is used there is interesting because in the, in the original language, it literally describes somebody who is crouching down or cowering like a beggar. That's the way I had to come to Jesus. Because I knew I wasn't worthy. I knew I didn't deserve what He was giving me. But the good news is He had come for that very crowd. To the beggars, to the ones who were crouching and cowering, who knew how poor they were. This word poor has to do with abject poverty. It, preaches someone, it depicts someone who is impoverished and needy. Not just without their possessions, but one who doesn't even have the necessities of life. Now, if you've ever visited a third world country or lived in a third world country, when Americans say they're poor, you kind of have to laugh. Because our poor look extremely wealthy to most people in the world. That's who Jesus was talking to. It exposes the inability and the insufficiency of any earthly system of values. Jesus had a habit of turning things upside down, not just the tables in the temple, but everything, everybody's concepts and ideas. He flipped them around. And though he was talking to the religious people in the synagogue that day, he was basically saying, you're poor, and I've come to make you rich. And that's the good news that I have to share with you today. No matter how poor we are, Jesus has come to make us rich. Not in a sense of some of this stuff that they call prosperity gospel, but in the real prosperity that is eternal. This highlights Israel's failure to keep the law by taking care of the poor. They had been commanded to take care of the poor. Remember, when they had harvested the fields, they were required to leave the corners there so that the poor could come in and get what was left. All throughout the things, that they, were, they were provisions for the poor. But they had begun to neglect that, and over time, given human reasons and human abilities, they had figured out ways to bypass it and circumvent these laws so that they got the whole thing. Sound familiar? So his Reference in Matthew to the poor in spirit from the Mount, uh, Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes literally refers to those who are spiritually destitute and completely reliant on God's mercy and grace. That's me. That's me. So that's the heartfelt encouragement. Now the O is the opening of prison doors. I, I like this one. Some of you know that I worked in a prison for 20 years as a federal prison chaplain. So I know about prison doors. I used to hear them clank behind me every day when I would go to work. And I carried these great big weighty keys. I had to wear an extra belt just to carry the keys around because they were so heavy. These are 
what they call Folger Atom Keys. Have you all ever seen those? They're about this big, about like that. Big, heavy brass keys. And I had three of them on my belt along with 20-something other little keys. I had to wear that on one side and a radio on the other side to balance things out a little bit, you know. The opening of prison doors, Jesus said that he'd come to release the captives. I want to break that down for you a little bit so you understand what he was saying. The word release here, sometimes translated as deliverance, means a release, a dismissal, to set free, to permanently loose. Sometimes it's even translated as forgive. It's the same word. So when we forgive, we are setting someone free. And oftentimes we find that when we forgive, we not only set that person free that has offended us, but we set ourselves free from the grudge, from the idea that they owe me. The biblical concept of forgiveness is a release for the person who is in debt, for the person who is in prison, and also for the debtor for the one who has carried the IOU around. And folks, I, I can't tell you how many times I've run across people that are in bondage to unforgiveness. They're in prison because they won't forgive. They feel, well, he doesn't deserve it, and all they're doing is keeping themselves locked up. Jesus came to release the captives. It's used of remission of sins and translated as forgiveness in Mark chapter 3, verse 29, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. Seventeen times this same word is in the New Testament. Twelve times out of those seventeen, it has to do with the release or forgiveness of sins. Therefore, sins are the cords whereby man is bound away from God and this almost always refers to divine forgiveness. You see, forgiveness starts with Him. It's like that parable that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 18 about the one who owed a great debt to his master. And he begged for forgiveness and the master forgave him. And then he went right out and ran into one of his guys that owed him much, much less. And insisted that he paid it immediately and threw him in jail. It helps us, I think, to understand that that's what Jesus was talking about. It's the same word that's used here, this release, this deliverance. Those of us who have been forgiven a lot need to forgive a lot. Those of us whom God has forgiven, we need to be ready to forgive others and to release them, and by releasing them, release ourselves. It's interesting that the word captives here, the definition is those taken captive at the point of a spear. It pictures a prisoner of war. Someone who has been dragged into bondage. And the word bondage there literally means addiction. <laughs> Anybody identify with that? Someone who has been manipulated by bondage, who has a chain around them, and the chain is what's leading them from one place to another. That's the picture here. And Jesus says, I've come to get rid of those chains. 
I've come to break that bondage. There's hope in that, folks. No matter what kind of bondage we find ourselves in today, no matter how bound up we are, no matter how heavy those chains get, Jesus has come to release us and to set us free. The P has to do with perception and perspective restored. I know it's two Ps, but that's okay. Hope. Perspective and perception restored. He said, I have come to give recovery of the sight to the blind. Recovery of sight to the blind. Recovery of sight, again, is one word in the Greek. And it means literally the returning of one's sight, the restoration of sight, to be able to see again. Scripture talks about us being blinded by the enemy, blinded by sin. Jesus said, I come to open your eyes to help you recover sight so you have proper perspective and proper perception of what the truth is. The greatest weapon of the enemy today and always has been is deception. He has blinded so many of us, even in the church, to the truth because the truth he knows will set us free. The truth will set the captives free. And he doesn't want us set free, he wants us in bondage. And so he blinds us to the opportunity that Christ has offered to us, the hope that Christ has offered us to have our sight fully restored and to see things through God's eyes from his perspective and by his perception. The word blind here is tuflos. Not tupac, tuflos. It's used 50 times in the New Testament. 46 times of those 50 is right here in the Gospels, in the four Gospels. It's used to depict someone who can't see. Originally, it referred to someone who had smoke or haze in their eyes and was obscuring their vision. The devil used a smoke screen on you yet? Or maybe lately? He's got a lot of smoke screens that he likes to throw at people to cloud their vision, to obscure God's hope. As a counselor, I've dealt with a lot of people who said they were hopeless. You know that hopelessness is one of the main things that drives people to suicide. Because they've been obscured Blind it to the hope there is in Christ. That's what this word is about. It's about restoring that. Figuratively, this word is often used of those who are ignorant or lacking understanding. You might call it mind blind. I have a scripture for that in a minute. But, it doesn't just depict one who is unable to see, but also a person who has been intentionally blinded. So it's not like they were born that way, but they have been intentionally blinded by someone else. It can picture one whose eyes have been deliberately removed. This was often the case in warfare back in those days. When they would have captives, they would blind people. There are even instances in the Scripture where captive kings and their families were blinded. One king was blinded right after seeing his family executed. So the last thing he saw was that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3 says this, And even if our gospel, good news, that Jesus started off with, 
is veiled. And that's the same word. It's the same word. Even if our good news is blinded, it's blinded to those who are perishing. Do you see the enemy's strategy? Do you see the enemy's scheme? He wants to blind us to the hope that we have in Christ. Verse 4 says, In whose case the God, little g, of this world has blinded the minds. There's mind blind. He's blinded the minds of unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel, of the good news, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He wants to blind us to the hope that there is in Jesus. He wants to cause us to be captives, to think that we are in a bondage that is beyond hope, and that we are so blind that we can't see that there's any hope at all of ever being delivered. But I'm here to tell you today there is hope in that Jesus that came as a babe in the manger who lived a sinless life, who died a sinless death on the cross for our sins. And three days later, He rose again. And because He rose and because He lives now to ever make intercession for our sin, there's hope. There's hope in Jesus. We need to have our perception and our perspective changed to understand that we are no longer wandering around blind. We no longer need to wander around in chains. We have been set free. There's hope. No matter what bondage you have, no matter what bondage you're in, no matter what blindness you may be encountering, Jesus is your answer. And because of that, we can go to the E, which is expectant trust. Jesus said, I've come to set free the oppressed. And that word set free is the same word that he used right before that, deliverance. It's the same word. But here he says to set free. And that word to set is part of this word. It's called apostello. Do you hear a word in there, apostello? Apostle. You know what the word apostle means? It means to send out on a mission. So apostles in the scripture are the ones who have been sent out on a mission for God. And Jesus says, I have come on a mission to set you free and send you out. So that you can spread this good news, this euangelion, this gospel. That it's possible to be free. It's possible to have your sight restored. It's possible to live in the joy and the peace and the love and the hope of Jesus. This word still, set free, set at liberty, delivered, released. It means to be released, to be dismissed, to set free. And in this case, from the detrimental effects of a shattered life. Anybody had a shattered life that they've been set free from? It speaks of a permanent release from the destructive effects of oppression. Let me tell you about oppression. This word oppression is the word thrao. It's where we get our word trauma from. It means to crush, to break down. It depicts someone who has been shattered, 
who has been fractured by life. It pictures someone whose lives are continually being split up and fragmented. Again, it's where we get our word trauma. So Jesus came to set free those who have been traumatized by sin. So no matter how busted up you may feel, no matter how shattered you may think you are, Jesus can put you back together. That's an expectant hope. That's the hope that Advent brings. When Jesus came as that little babe in the manger, God had a plan. And His plan was to bring hope to the oppressed, to those who had been traumatized by sin. And no matter how deep the trauma may be, Jesus is your answer. Jesus is your answer. Let me just kind of throw this in here. There's one teacher, his name is Neil Anderson. Y'all heard him or not. He said, people are not in bondage to trauma. They're in bondage to the lies they believe because of trauma. Let me say that again. People are not in bondage to trauma. They're in bondage to the lies they believe because of trauma. We've been blinded to the truth that Jesus is the answer to our trauma. So no matter how traumatized you have been by sin, Jesus is your healer. Jesus is the one who will make you whole. So what, is we, what do we do with all this? It's up to us now. It's up to us to remember that experiencing this biblical hope that we've been talking about is beginning with a choice. We have to choose. Hope is a choice. Hope is a choice. It's not some fairy tale. It's not some way out there thing. It's not some random emotion. Oh, I hope I can feel hope. (laughs) Hope is a choice. And when you choose Jesus, you've chosen hope. When you open yourself up to Him, biblical hope is a choice. It's a definite decision. And it's the beginning of receiving hope. It's a gift that God has offered us. He says, here's your hope. His name is Jesus. No matter how hopeless you may feel, I've heard somewhere that feelings are not facts. But let me tell you, everything in this Word is fact. And He is our living hope. He is our good hope. He is our eternal hope. Hope is a relationship that Jesus wants us to enter into with Him. It's not situational. Some people only hope if or help when. It's kind of like a lot of other emotions, you know, they're situational. Our hope is not situational, it's relational. It's because we are in a relationship with Him and He's in a relationship with us that we have hope. So my hope today is not based on if this happens, or if that happens, or if I feel this way, or if somebody treats me this way. My hope is in the fact that Jesus is the hope of the world. 
His presence is with us. Jesus said He wants to come in and abide with us and us with Him. And He said the Father would do the same. If I get to preach that message on joy on the third Sunday, I've got more to say about that. But I'll save it. Hope is also participatory. It's a shared process. It's a lifestyle. It's developed through an ongoing process. In other words, you don't just boom, and it's all done. It doesn't work that way. As long as we're in this fleshy stuff, we're going to have struggles. Scripture warns us about that. It's not all peaches and cream, and you find the roses have thorns. Even though they're pretty to look at, and they smell nice, they'll stick you. Kind of like emotions. So we are in a process. And the more we transfer our hope from our own abilities and our own feelings and our own circumstances to the hope that is in Jesus Christ, the longer that process takes, the longer we have hope. (laughs) And the more secure our hope is in Him. It's a participatory process. It's kind of like John the Baptist said, He must increase, I must decrease. My hopelessness has to decrease so that the hope of Jesus can increase. Jesus is our living hope. I mentioned that earlier. First Peter chapter 1 says this. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? A living hope. It's not some hope in the sweet by and by. It's living right now, right here. It's a present hope. Because Jesus lives, I have a promise. I too will live. Like that old Bill Gaither song, you know, because he lives. Because he lives, I have hope in Jesus. Let me finish reading before I get carried away here. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled. Oh, those are good words. I can't take the time to go through that now. And it will not fade away. No expiration date. It's reserved in heaven for you. It's in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy or corrupt. It has nothing to do with our earthly circumstances. It's based on Him. In this, verse 6, you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Anybody experience that? Yeah. Peter said, expect that. It's going to happen. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. Where's our hope? It's in Jesus. So that nothing in this world, no circumstance, no person in this world can touch our hope. Because He is our hope. And though you have not seen Him, I like this, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him, you greatly rejoice. That's what Advent is about. It's the rejoicing 
of the coming of the Lord. With, this is part of my message on, on joy, joy inexpressible, joy unspeakable, and full of glory. If you've ever experienced a joy unspeakable and full of glory, you'll know what I'm talking about. Otherwise, it's hard to put into words because it is inexpressible. It's unspeakable. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. There's good news to those of us who are poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to those who have been held captive. Those who have been taken prisoners of war. We are in spiritual warfare. Paul tells us that over and over again in his letters. We have been taken prisoners of war, but Jesus came to set us free. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. He said, let the sight be restored. That your perception, your perspective, will be returned to you as God intended from the beginning. To set free those who are oppressed and traumatized and bruised. And to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Why did that little verse get added on there at the end? The word year here literally means a definite time. In other words, do it. Just do it. No more procrastination. No more putting it off. Now is the time. That's what Advent is. It's a time when you say enough. Enough of being in bondage. Enough of being traumatized. Enough of being blinded. I'm ready for all that Jesus has for me. Jesus is coming again. Did you know that? We're celebrating what's called First Advent. But there is a second Advent that Scripture talks about. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. It says, For the grace gift of God has appeared. Who's that gift? It's a who, not a what. His name is Jesus. Bringing salvation to all men, verse 12. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope. The blessed hope. He's coming again. And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That second advent. He's coming again, this time not as a little baby laid in an animal's feeding trough. But as King of Kings. Lord of Lords. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Zealous. For good deeds. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared to us what we will be. That's hope. In other words, this ain't the end of it. We know that when He appears, that's second advent, He's coming again. We will be like Him. Oh, how about that one? In a moment, in the, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed and become like Him. Because we will see Him 
just as he is. Not as a baby in the manger, but as King of kings, Lord of lords. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. What is that saying? When we fix our, our eyes and our hope on Jesus, who is the hope, it drains off all the impurities of doubt, all the impurities of unbelief, all the impurities of unforgiveness, all the impurities of trauma. It drains away and He washes us and makes us clean. And He says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Our living hope is in Jesus Christ. He has come. He is here with us now and He is coming again.